Cell is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products in the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sector. Why not register and join the webinar being held on the 24th of March on AI auto-contouring capabilities with Therapanacea? And you can also catch up with OSL at the BIR conference on the 30th and 31st of March, as well as visiting our booth at Estro this year. As always, please do not hesitate to get in touch to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable account specialists, as and when required. We are all from a radiotherapy background and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and workflows of all of our products. Please go to our website at www.osl.uk.com or if you would like to speak to us, please call 01743 462 694. Hi, my name's Laura and I work at Convensis as a Partnerships Manager. Join us at the NHS Oncology Conference on the 6th of June 2023 in Manchester. We'll open the debate on how the NHS is planning to lean on new models of delivery and innovation to help manage the current treatment backlogs and improve outcomes on a national scale. All tickets are free for the NHS to attend. To register for your free ticket, visit convensis.co.uk. and welcome to our chat the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer led oncology podcast welcome to podcast number 83 my name's joe mcnamara and i'm joined by fellow host namanjolka anderson hi everyone so a big thank you to our last guest cheryl cruz who talked about why breast density matters really interesting topic that i've personally not heard about before so if you haven't had a chance yet please do go and take a listen so i'm really pleased to introduce our guest for today for the second time we've had her before um, at ukio um, so dr lisa ashmore who's going to be discussing her career and the gynae narratives project so morning lisa welcome to the podcast morning thank you so much for joining us again we really appreciate it you obviously uh, intrigued us with your 10 minute snippet podcast last time so we we had to have you back on um so can you tell us about you and your current role how you got there yeah sure so um it's hard to define my current role because i've currently got about three or four different roles so i'm gonna just say a little bit about what each of those are so my what I would say is my substantive post so the contract that I'm employed in most of the time is as a senior lecturer in social sciences at Lancaster Medical School at Lancaster University Um, I'm also the associate dean for engagement at Lancaster University in the faculty of health and medicine and I am also a clinical academic therapeutic radiographer So one of the things that people don't tend to know about academic roles is that um, depending on what kind of contract you've got and also depending on what kind of students or department that you're working in, you can often end up having a bit of a portfolio of a career. And it's actually not all about teaching a lot of the time. So my um, contract at Lancaster is teaching and research. So I do teaching, research and engagement. So my teaching is about teaching social sciences to medical students. And that's things like inequalities, things about gender, things about how society really affects healthcare. And that's important, obviously, for all healthcare professionals to know. Um, My engagement or leadership role 
is as associate dean um as i said for engagement in health and medicine and that's a kind of strategic leadership role so i get to sit in lots of university meetings and do things like that with our partners at lancaster university and our collaborators and that's to kind of meet lancaster's aim to what we say engage actively with our community of communities so you know we've got responsibility as a university to work with our communities not just here in lancaster but actually nationally and globally so um, i um, facilitate that within health and medicine and then my research um, focuses on including traditionally excluded groups in care and service development so um, recently i've been working on the guiding narratives project which i'll talk about probably a bit later um, so yeah those that's my kind of academic role it's kind of made up of those things but i'm also actually on secondment a day a week at lancashire teaching hospitals as a clinical academic therapeutic radiographer so that's um, a role that is, is relatively new, um, clinical academic roles for radiographers. Um, they're emerging as um, more people kind of establish these and the service um, develops. But um, basically what I do in that role is one day a week I go into the radiotherapy department and work with the staff to support them in their academic activity. So whether that's um, writing for... Um, publications or whether that's um, submitting abstracts to conferences like UKIO um, or actually helping with research projects or thinking about how can we do some um, academic activity that would support service development. So there, that's my role. It's massive. Sorry. <laughs> Filled the podcast now. You've got lots, lots of roles, lots of roles. I'm thinking that if I was... Um, a student therapeutic radiographer or any AHP listening to this podcast episode, I'll be thinking, oh, how she got into all of those different things. So when you first qualified, did you ever have kind of a career goal to go into academia? How, how have you managed to get all these different roles and expertise in to be able to deliver in these roles? Yeah, so no, I didn't ever think, it never even occurred to me to become an academic, actually, when I first qualified. Um, I qualified in 2000 from City University, and I worked for a bit in London, and I was just, um, I guess, a bit kind of... And when I first qualified, I couldn't work out what was going to be the future for me in therapeutic radiography. So back in 2000, there weren't, you know, there wasn't advanced practice. There was basically you qualified as a radiographer and you walked in and out of the room, as we used to say, um, for the rest of your career. And I just I didn't really I started to have a bit of a panic, I think. And then so I was offered a research post at the University of Hertfordshire and I moved there to do um, a research assistant post. And I was looking at careers and destinations of radiography students from the University of Hertfordshire. And I guess that's where I really started to get um, excited about research and the opportunities that there could be um, working in an academic institution. And from there, I moved to um, Lancashire Teaching Hospitals as a research radiographer. Um, and I was looking at clinical trials there. So, um, and doing some of our homegrown research. So we did a study looking at skin care in radiotherapy. And, but the opportunity then came up for me to do a PhD. And I was absolutely thrilled to, at that point because I what I really wanted to do was not deliver clinical trials work anymore. Um, I found that 
being a clinical trials radiographer where you're recruiting people onto other studies um, and kind of filling in the forms and doing the, that kind of work. It wasn't giving me the opportunity to really shape the direction of care that I wanted to do. I wanted to be set in the studies. I wanted to be thinking, setting the challenges and thinking about what the problems are that we want to answer. So the opportunity came to do a PhD, but I didn't do a PhD in radiotherapy. Um, I did my PhD in sociology, actually. So I was really keen to kind of expand my knowledge base and think about going out and doing a PhD in a topic and bringing that back to radiotherapy so that we could think more broadly about what we do within care and what we do within um, radiotherapy treatment. So it was quite interesting actually to do a PhD in sociology because I was sitting alongside people who were doing PhDs, like people were off to um, the West Bank, they were off to um, doing stuff on the Hungarian parliament. They were, you know, there was just such a wide range of people doing their projects, but we were all using the same kind of literature and working with the same kind of issues, thinking about how are people making knowledge? How are people included? How are people excluded? Um, where is the trouble? What is the problem? And I think it was really valuable for me to go and spend that time in the sociology department and then think about how we can bring that back into shaping radiotherapy. You basically role modelled not being siloed in radiotherapy, I would say. I think when you qualify, you do always just think, that's it, I'm just going to be in and out of the room all the time. What got you into therapeutic radiography, if I take you back a bit? Oh, wow, back to there. That's interesting. Um, so I was on I wanted to do pharmacology actually at university and I did terribly in my A-levels like and I didn't even have the A-levels to go to university at that point so at 18 and I had two E's and a U in my A-levels I was um kind of thinking I'm either going to join the WH Smith's management program that was one option and then my sister very kindly said that she I could go and live with her and resit my A-levels so I resat my A-levels and we were just I'd arrived at um, Colchester Institute to resit these um, A-levels and they would say right you need to put your UCAS form in and I was like ah <laughs> okay I'd only just arrived and so we were flicking through the UCAS book and my auntie actually used to be a diagnostic radiographer and so my sister was like oh you should do radiography that sounds all right and I was like yeah but I don't want to be taking x-rays so um, that's how I discovered radiotherapy um, so I was an accidental therapeutic radiographer I think but actually what it did as a profession it ticked all of those boxes of things that I wanted to do. I, you know, I had a, I wanted to do science subject. I was really passionate about care and caring for people. And I just wanted to be in a kind of community of practice. I think that was the thing that really struck me about um, therapeutic radiography as well. It was just that kind of team that I just didn't get the sense of from diagnostic radiography in the same way. Obviously, I know that there are definitely teams in diagnostic radiography, but so that was my, my journey in. So you talked about obviously the community of practice within radiotherapy. Um, can you talk us through the Gynae Narratives project? Yes, definitely. So um, the Gynae Narratives project kind of started early in, the idea started in about 2018, 2019, and we were... Um, just having a conversation. So me and Danny Hutton from, um, he now works at the um, Northwest Operational Delivery Network for um, radiotherapy. So 
um, covers the northwest region. But we were having a conversation at the time about how um, the patient is often excluded in advancements in radiotherapy care. So we, we, he'd just finished a project looking at bladder filling, so how when people come for treatment and they have to control the size of their bladder, and they'd done, looked at all of these images, and I was like, oh, how did the patients feel about that? And he was like, oh, well, we didn't ask the patients how they felt about that. And I was like, we should probably ask the patients how they feel about these things. So those conversations kind of started, and then um, we decided you know, we could maybe put a project together working together to have a look at you know what are people's experiences of their radiotherapy we just don't really know um we kept talking about how we we say all these phrases and we're like actually i don't really know whether that's i've never spoken to a patient about whether that is actually the case or not so we put in a, an application together with a colleague here at lancaster um Carol Thomas, who has um, unfortunately since then died, but she was really um, instrumental in shaping the kind of narrative element of the project. And she um, encouraged us to use this as a method, of w a good method of collecting people's experiences. And she'd worked with um, teenagers who'd had cancer before on the narrative method, so it felt appropriate to do that. Um, so Danny and I put the project together with Carol. Um, originally it was rejected because they said it was too broad and that w we wouldn't be able to achieve the aims. So then we um, joined forces with um, Professor Vicky Singleton, also at Lancaster University, and she um, is from gender and women's studies as her kind of interests and expertise. And so we focused then on gynecological cancer. And so that's how we kind of came up with this project together and this team really across um, practice, across, across academia to think about what are people's experiences of radiotherapy. We had to, um, a small project in the lead up to it, which was funded by the Medical Research Council, where we were trying to design a digital intervention for um, supporting people with um, their treatment, really. So after they finish treatment, the, uh, people talk about falling off the cliff or there not being any support for them at the end. So we, we were trying to come up with this digital solution, which we did as the project, but we never we never launched it. But what that did do is it, the conclusions from that very small project where we just did some workshops with patients and practitioners, um, we really um, it identified that there was such a focus needed on late effects of radiotherapy, um, specifically in psychosocial well-being. Um, and that also co-creating, that process of co-creating with patients in doing that digital project, it was so rewarding and fulfilling. Just having those conversations and hearing people's experiences of what it was like to have radiotherapy and that period of time afterwards that we just... As I said, Danny and I had had these conversations. We just didn't know what was going on there. So that was um, a really great conclusion from that project. And then we also, um, and we've written about this, um, had this real passion that we have to attend to these things that are neglected as part of radiotherapy and as part of our care. So um, we came kind of committed. And I guess we, you could say that we're kind of activists now in a way that we're just trying to make sure that we keep people talking about these things that are often silenced in, as part of radiotherapy. Lisa, was there anything that came out from the narrative project that sticks with you? 
Yeah, yeah, the, well, heaps. So we had uh, on the team, we read through the narratives together and some of them were just so hard to read with. Some of them were funny, like some people really were quite funny, but some of them were really hard. So the one that sticks, um, well, okay, so there's, um, I guess I could pick a million, um, but I guess one that does stick is um, a woman who was having treatment for gynae cancer and she was talking about her late effects and she says that she's been consented to have loose bowels and but she, what she never realized was that that meant that she could never be more than 10 minutes away from a toilet and so she could now no longer pick up her kids from school and so because she just couldn't stand in the playground for that long because she didn't can't be away from the toilet so that that's kind of really hard-hitting when you think actually we're consenting people but our understanding of some of these terms or what we the the depth that we go to to explain what those terms might be is maybe a bit lacking that we don't really go into the details about actually so you're going to have loose bowels and we can all say oh well I've had loose bowels before that's fine I can handle that it's a bit like it's the same with fatigue actually yeah so we say you know you'll experience fatigue but um and people might think oh I've been tired or I've had a baby so I've been up in the middle of the night I might be but actually cancer related fatigue is just a different ball game altogether so I think how we explain some of these things as part of consent um, is important. One of the other things that actually really did stick with me so um, the approach that I take to my work is from science and technology studies which really looks at how people and material things come together to create the world in which we live so when we look at some studies we only really look at what the people are doing but actually um, science and technology studies says we should look at what the objects around us are doing as well and what's happening there and there was one woman who was talking about her experience of brachytherapy and she was saying about how when she got onto the um, outside the brachytherapy suite, they couldn't find the keys to open the door. So she's there with the um, applicators inside her. And then the door is locked, obviously, because there's a radioactive source in there. So it's kept highly secure. And But they couldn't find the keys. So someone had to go off and find the keys. And then they came back with this big bunch of keys. And she's lying on the bed. So she, all she can hear are the keys jangling. And then she said it sounded like someone was opening the door to like a, a cell. And you just think when you start paying attention to some of those objects that are, are happening around us and what's going on in that sort of what we call socio-material worlds, you can get a sense of actually that had a big influence on her experience. And the simple thing is that someone runs ahead and does the key thing without the patient experiencing the key thing. But yet we know what it's like. Things get in the way and you can't always, you know, there's not always someone available or maybe someone thought that someone else had done it and those kind of things. But it had a massive influence on that woman's care. It's funny you mentioned about sounds. Obviously, with an external beam radiotherapy, you have a maze. But if there's people sitting outside, I've had patients say, why were you all laughing? And then you go back in the room and say, oh, no, we were, you know, we were doing this and that's it for the rest of the treatment. They'll remember that. Or if someone's come in the room and said something, they can hear it down the maze. It's it's very simple for us, but I think people forget that. Um, or also like the control room doors. So if they are closed off for Linux, um, actually you can hear through the door. It's not soundproof. So when you hear people talking about patients and even you're walking past the door and the patients are sitting right outside, it's something I learned as a student. Um, 
and actually funny as well you said about loose bowels it's a term that I got told off for by quite a young gynae patient because when I told her in a first aid chat that she might get loose bowels she said what my bowels are going to come outside of my body so now I always say loose stools <laughs> uh, yeah I found that out the hard way because she was very she didn't want to have treatment and I was like it's not loose bowels and then had to get someone else to come and explain it properly to her yeah, yeah but I th- so you say you found it out the hard way but I think that you know it's actually the best way to find out isn't it to have these conversations with patients and and also to and this was something we really found difficult in the Gynae Narratives Project to kind of expose some of these matters of care that you know maybe make us feel uncomfortable because we feel a bit defensive because we're like oh no I'm so sorry and I shouldn't have said that and I've been saying it wrong but I think if maybe we are um you know open to like receiving this stuff I think it's the best way of learning isn't it and maybe showing a bit of humility when we're going through our careers and saying I am happy to learn I am ready to learn so tell me what am I getting wrong rather than saying oh I'm so sorry or I don't know what I was doing or yeah I definitely think we've learned that through rad chat actually um when we first started the podcast it could be quite easy when you we're listening to patients sharing their experience to be quite defensive of the whole profession going oh I know I know why we do that I understand kind of what happened and the reasons for why maybe that issue occurred but it is about almost saying actually I, I didn't appreciate that and I'm so sorry from your perspective and we need to make practice changes as a consequence of that and it's much more powerful you know, that was one of the reasons that Numan and I get so passionate about doing the social media and the podcast stuff is because we know as therapeutic radiographers, if a patient says to you, actually, that wasn't great for me and it's impacted me in this way, I'm going to make a change. Whereas if we as academics go in or you get a senior management team going in going, we need to make this change, everyone eye rolls and goes, oh, no. We can't do that. <laughs> it's too much work. There's, you know, we've not got enough time. We need some more training. Whereas I think it's so much more powerful using that patient voice and experience. What have you found in terms of kind of the consequences of doing the gynae narratives that have changed practice or that you're hoping will change? Yeah, so um, at the back of, so as part of the Gandhi Narratives um, project, we've released a book that um, people can get a copy for free. And at the back of that book, we've put a a manifesto. So a manifesto for change. We went quite grand. I don't know whether um, we're shooting too high, but actually there were just some things that we thought actually we could really just change care for the better. And and they're not... um, you know, they're not seismic shifts that they're after. They're just reminders to people about, you know, acknowledging that every patient trajectory is is unique. Yeah, that not everybody um, has got to the first day with the same experience. It's not linear they don't all go through their treatment in the same way we have our processes we have a very linear process and we like we do planning and then we do first day chats and then we do treatment and then we do summaries and then we send you on your way um but actually the patients are not going emotionally they're not going in that linear way they're you know they're all over it's so pathways are emotional and they're difficult for people in different ways and so we have to think um beyond our our services and our pathways and our structures 
And in doing that, we would prioritise what people are feeling and what they're experiencing. So um, what what notices have we no- what have we noticed in change? Well, I think it's inter- we're trying to encourage um, conversations, actually. So we're not we're trying to encourage people to be um, empowered, potentially, although you know as a sociologist i have a difficult relationship with the idea of power but um we but we want people to um you know feel that where if they ask a question if they say stop i just need to know something else here about this or could you just tell me about this that that will be received and people will um not shoot them down not i've heard somebody recently said that they tried to ask their consultant a question the consultant put their hand up in a way of like saying stop and said i've got 10 minutes for this appointment and i've got to get through everything i need to get through and it was it was heartbreaking to hear that person recounting that story so we need to give people the confidence that then they can say well actually you need to listen to me but also we need other people to be challenging that kind of behavior as well so we're trying to encourage conversations and say we have to make space and time for conversations um i've been we've been going out to various places talking to therapeutic radiographers we're going to conferences we came to you guys at sheffield joe um we are also um, talking to people in practice as well and various bits and pieces that we're, we're doing with them. So it's great when people order the book and we can we ask them, what do, what do you plan to do with it? And they're like, well, I'm setting up this clinic or I just want to help my patients better. So we've got all of this really rich data about what people are trying to do with the findings of the, of the project. Um, at one um, centre they've put the the book as part of the induction programme for the brachytherapy suite so any um, radiograph- therapeutic radiographer who is um, moving into that area is encouraged to read the book or is asked to read the book as part of their induction into that and I think that's really you know that's just what we want to do we want to sensitise people to some of the issues really. I've also um, worked with um, Radiotherapy UK and we- I went down to the um, all party parliamentary group for radiotherapy and we um, and I spoke to to them there about patient experiences of care and about how you know the um, all party parliamentary group are really advocating for uh, equipment replacement program and to make sure that we've got more um, Linux basically to treat people with and also better access to Linux but I am also trying to push that conversation a bit to say what are we doing as well to support people who finish radiotherapy treatment what can we do we can't just push more people through the system without picking people up at the end because if people are dropping off a cliff if they are experiencing late effects and we've got like five late effect clinics in the UK or you know I know the number is increasing but what are we actually doing to support people through this process so that is what we're hoping to do we've got grand plans we just want to make sure that the conversation is open for people to share their experiences. You sent the book out to all the departments in the country so I remember we got it um, and it was really interesting quite a few people were you know excited to read it how have you found obviously sending it out have you had much feedback so far yeah so um 
we get bits of feedback. We'd love more feedback, good or bad. Like I say, I'm, I think that what we want to do is make sure we're getting it right. So, you know, if people say, actually, I, I think this is wrong, then that that's fine. I'm happy to receive that too. But we do get some good feedback. We sent it to um, the head office of Maggie's, so the Maggie centres, which are around the UK to support people during their cancer journey. Um, for want of a better word um, they and they asked for a copy to be put in every Maggie Centre in the UK so there should be a copy now um, with a QR code for people to access that but also the um, Pelvic Radiation Disease Association so the PRDA um, they um, have um, they members of that group are now um, recommending it to various people who come through treatment um, with patients with radiation disease. Lisa, can I ask very quickly, um, you're very passionate about this, but why Why is it your passion? Why have you taken it forward? Um, I was absolutely moved by the stories that people shared with us. So um, my grandmother, actually, Eileen, she had radiotherapy for gynecological cancer and she had radical treatment when she was in her 80s and she was left with loose stools which I will now always say um so she was left with loose stools for the remainder of her life she never got over the side effects of her treatment it was quite a tough process for her at her age to go through and I think that she all she probably needed well she she didn't need any of that stuff to be honest that experience but she needed somebody to acknowledge what she was going through and to say yeah that is because of the radiotherapy and that is because what we did to you and so I think that kind of inspired me really to keep going and I think that when I hear people who are closed down when they try and have these conversations and they are closed down or they can't get anywhere or you know the primary care services don't know how to support people um, who have got late effects I think it's really tough and I think that there's something that we can do if, if you know if people are prepared to listen to me saying these things then I will carry on saying them and then once people stop listening I'll move on to somewhere else where I can try and make a bit of a difference but I really want people to be able to feel valid in their experience and to not feel closed down whenever they try and raise it with somebody. Lisa, you mentioned that you've kind of moved back into clinical practice now. How have you found that transition back from academia and into clinical? And and also, how are you using that role then to support maybe implementation of some of the things you've talked about? So when I went off to do my PhD in sociology, um, I did a bit of bank work for a bit and I tried to stay active and and up to date with the register and then um, I had babies and various other things and I just so I came off the register it just didn't feel that I I didn't feel that I could stay on Um, so the healthcare professions council register. Lisa going back as a a band five um, I mean this I was trying to think of a good word but as a mature person going in how have you found working (laughs) I can't believe you said that. That's, that's the best way to say <laughs> do it. Do not let him say a mature person. <laughs> You're not a mature wow. person. <laughs> but you do say, like, I was a mature student going into uni. So going in, having had all that experience, and then going back almost as a band five level, how have you found sort of supporting the newer generation coming through? So obviously people who've just gone through COVID where 
they've had online lectures and their whole experience has been completely altered and now they're coming into a profession where you know we're struggling some people to pay for food bills and stuff like that yeah there's a lot there so I um I suppose I don't have a supportive role in in the department being on the bank um I guess in a clinical academic role I do because I'm there to support people who maybe um are feeling a little bit beaten by the system at the moment and drained by the system and it was a hard period of time for people coming through that and I think what I'm really keen to do is to show opportunities for um you know what could be different what what could you do I think for research in particular it it doesn't mean that you have to quit being a clinical therapeutic radiographer and go and become a clinical trials radiographer i think people get this sense that research is something that oh that happens in the research office or that is something that happens over there or i'm not into i'm not into research and it's like but have you read a paper or have you read an article have you listened to rad chat like have you if you are engaging in the creation of new knowledge then you are doing research and i think that it, there's a space for everybody to be doing some of that and it for me and like I said at the beginning it, it there's different things for different people like I was never going to become a um, review radiographer that was not going to be where I landed so you know that's great because there are people who are really passionate about that and so they can crack on and do that and I can be passionate about research and say if this is something that floats your boat or gets you excited then you can do that within your current job so that's either setting up a journal club or um is it just writing um a reflection on some learning that you've had and putting that through to get published in you know synergy or insight or you know just doing something going to the conferences and seeing what's going on and learning new stuff so i think i would encourage people to kind of lift their eyes up a little bit sometimes you can get really into the into the moment of just like oh this is really hard work and I've been doing this for ages and I think that's where I had got to actually when I first qualified I I hadn't been through the pandemic and I hadn't experienced anything like the kind of difficulties that are going on now in the NHS that that's for sure um but I definitely was stuck in the in the kind of oh this is so mundane and I don't know how to lift my head up and think about what could be different but I think there are opportunities. Um, I want to come back to the mature maturity thing. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, um, Let's say experience. Let's say experience. Yes, I much prefer yeah, okay. that. <laughs> Very experienced practitioner. I did just text her saying, oh no. <laughs> um, I, I think that um, I was really angry as a therapeutic radiographer when I was in the NHS the first time round, and I don't think I channeled that anger in a very productive way and I just used to get really you know cross at things that were frustrating me or things that I couldn't make better and then I you know and I just didn't know what to do with that and I think going back now with experience uh, thank you and um, also having worked in academia where the kind of culture is much different and we are you know we talk to each other differently actually because we take a slower pace maybe or I don't know what it is but I feel going back with that level of experience I can say actually 
what is the issue here? Is this the issue or is it something else? And I think that I find it much easier to reflect on. And I can see myself thinking, oh, that is something that would have made me really angry in the past. But now I know that that is just something that you have to let go because it's not within your circle of control. It's not going to get any better. And actually, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that important. So I think that's what maturity experience has given me. I can certainly empathise with you saying that because I was exactly the same um, when I was practising clinically and it's the main reason I went into academia because I thought actually if I can't make changes in practice to support patient care, can I change the future generation? And I know even from students now, they will eye roll at me when I'm like, this is so important, you know, these are what the patients are saying um, you need to take this on board and even if it's not something that you're doing in practice you have the power and expertise now um, to be able to start to make those changes or open up the conversation it's not necessarily about okay I'm going to start a late effects clinic as a bamfire radiographer but it's having those conversations it's being brave enough to in a staff meeting going I've read some research or has anyone read the gynae narratives or I've listened to Rad Chat episode with a patient talking about their experience and actually can we have a conversation about how we can implement something that's going to make practice better. I think that's so incredibly important. Lisa, I'm really, um, I'm really interested. If I was a commissioner or a manager, why should they invest in a role like yours within the clinical environment? Oh, God, because I think staff retention and recruitment, I think showing people that there are options to um, do your job, but also feel sort of more wholly fulfilled. Yeah, you can use we've got bright people coming into therapeutic radiography. We need to use their brains. We need to make sure that they are kept active and want to stay in the in those posts so i think that you know if you lose somebody a day a week to do a um a academic project actually you gain somebody for the four days that they might have actually left left the profession so definitely recruitment and retention service development i think that there is so much that could be done um more in radiotherapy we've got so little evidence base for a lot of what we do actually and I think that we could really sell our profession as um, generating that evidence base and really driving forward um, care and practice I think that there's just so much that can be gained from having somebody who's around I feel so I I feel a bit kind of um big-headed saying this but somebody was saying to me the other day that you know it's just so good to have you here that we can run things past you so people were submitting their abstracts to UKIO and I was like well I'll just give them a read and then I'll do this and it's like having um, somebody on hand to, to just kind of give you a bit of reassurance and back up and say you've got this you've got this you could do this or highlighting those nuggets and saying do you know what you've done is amazing so keep doing that and then people feel good about themselves they want to stay in the job they do more of it and then they improve care so there's there's all of these benefits the society of radiographers actually issued guidance on clinical academic roles and i used that when i was um thinking about you know is this something that i would want to consider developing or is it something that we could think of and 
in that, it lists all of the benefits of having a clinical academic within the department. And if anybody is thinking of, you know, setting up um, or advertising for a clinical academic, or if anybody wants to have that as a long-term career goal, I would really advise they looked at that guidance from the society because it sets it out really clearly. There's job descriptions in there, there's person spec in there, and it just gives you a real sense of what, what the role can be. Obviously, I don't have, you know, I'm only a band five radiographer, I don't have a clinic. So there'll be other clinical academics who could be employed in the hospital as a consultant radiographer for their clinical time and in a university for two days doing their research and bringing in funding to help support projects and to you know if you had that full five day a week clinical academic role that would be amazing for for people um you know, I just feel really fortunate that I can go in for a day a week and I can find out what everyone's doing. And people are doing amazing stuff everywhere across the whole of the UK. So what's next for you, Lisa? Uh, yeah, <laughs> and you, you said this question was coming up. <laughs> um, so what's next? Um, I think... Um, I so I'm working with a coach actually at the moment so I'm going to advocate for some coaching for people if they are feeling a little bit kind of career um you know overwhelmed or um lacking direction or you know just needing to have some conversations through so I am working with a coach to think about actually I can't carry on doing all of these jobs I haven't got enough hours in the day <laughs> so what I would like to do is really think about where is it best to focus my efforts and um, I kind of joke that actually what I'm going to do is I'm just going to marry Rich I'm going to marry Hugh Jackman that's my main aim and I'm just going to swan around a mansion but I um, don't think that is what the listeners want to hear about <laughs> and Hugh Jackman's not found me yet so I'll just have to carry on finding a way through um, so I think in terms of research, I'm really keen to continue looking at late effects. I just, I really think that we have to think about that language that we're using when we're consenting people. We are consenting people. We've got the new consent forms, but what are people's understanding of consent and how are people feeling about their decisions to consent following treatment? So I want to do some more work on decision regret, really. How do people feel about when they've had their treatment? How much do they feel that they knew about what was going to happen? And maybe if they had their chance again, would they tolerate what, has, um, what they've come through? So I would really like to do something about that. Um, also thinking about consent as something, you know, we have it as this distinct moment in radiotherapy that you consent at one point, but could we think about it in a more kind of fluid or agile way? Like, what is it about consent? So there's something there that I want to really look at. Um, I really, I'm just so moved by what every, all people's experiences. And so I just don't think I can let that go. So in, in my coaching, I've talked about, you know, is research the thing? And I'm like, oh, no, I couldn't let people down. So um, I don't think I can let go of my research. I continue to do quite a lot of patient public involvement work um, with as part of the projects that I'm doing, as part of the stuff that I'm supporting people with um, at Lanks Teaching Hospital. Um, and when you hear people talk, you cannot turn your back on those conversations. You have to move forward. So I am definitely going to continue doing kind of patient-informed research. 
I'd really like to see more clinical academics. I'd love to see um, more people um, doing research as part of their routine job, but also having clinical academics in therapeutic radiography who are driving the agenda. They're leading projects. They are saying, this is what we need to do. And I'm looking at the consultant radiographers. I'm looking at the ACPs and I'm thinking, you guys are so well suited to really taking this on. So how we can support those groups of people to work on that third pillar of their research, I think is really important so that we can get more um, clinical academics coming through. I'm trying, I'm, um, you know, I, whenever I put a research project in, I'm trying now to always cost in a radiographer, um, a therapeutic radiographer, um, who can develop and, you know, have that experience. So we've worked with a couple of therapeutic radiographers now over the course of the Gynae Narratives project. Um, I'm also trying to right, create PhD opportunities for people who maybe want to do PhD and then um, have that as part of their practice. Um, so I'm kind of caught between all of my organisations at the moment, but everything feels so rewarding. I'm I'm not. Don't tell the coach because she'll be really. <laughs> I was I'm not prepared to let anything go yet. So um, I don't know how that's going to pan out when I next speak to her. How did you find the coach? I'm just in case there are other people like you listening who are maybe doing four or five jobs at the same time. You know, how did you reach out to someone and tell them the whole truth about everything? <laughs> so I feel like if you hide something, you're going to lose something. <laughs> yeah, so um, the university are really keen on coaching now as a we have mentors, but they're they're really keen on supporting people through coaching. So we have a you know um, coaches that we can access um, we have internal coaches actually and I think that's happening a lot in the NHS as well where people are being trained up to become coaches to coach each other but for me I really wanted somebody who was outside of Lancaster University who could give me a kind of um, honest and like um, challenge me a little bit sometimes I just felt that if I had somebody who was deep in the belly of the beast with me they'd be like oh yeah no there's no way you can get through that and that wouldn't be helpful for me so um, I approached somebody that we the university have worked with previously I think it's it's about having a clear idea about what it is that you want to get out of the coaching even if you don't know what it is that the answer is but you need to know why you're going into it because otherwise it's just therapy I think and I don't think that's that's not the same thing it's really interesting because it's something that they do a lot within the corporate world isn't it coaching it's kind of part and parcel and I know my husband's got aspirations to do kind of CEO chief people officer thing and it's really interesting about kind of searching for a coach and getting that person who's right for you but also how much it costs. I know, like honestly, we're in the wrong business, but coaching is big money. They pay such a large amount of money. But I suppose if you're going to run a company uh, within the corporate world, you're going to want the right people at that level, aren't you? But it's so valuable. And the conversations, I think he helps Numan and I through coaching, but what he's learned from coaching. So actually that dissemination of skill is actually really important as well. In terms of asking questions, yeah, definitely. And within a cult, with an organisation as well. So I think that's in the in the NHS where we 
you know where you see people have started doing coaching then that's where people can do a bit of that looking up actually because you can challenge each other and just kind of say but you know why is that the case why is that so why do you feel like that but what would you want to get out of that and those questions that um you know can ask of each other and i think really helps the culture because otherwise we're just shutting each other down all the time and we're saying oh it's not possible no you can't do that oh no 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 well I've tried that and it didn't work you know those kinds of things that we've probably all heard from elsewhere oh Lisa honestly it's been a delight to talk to you before we end any top tips that you would give anyone I know you've kind of given us a few snippets throughout the podcast episode but is there anything lasting um impression wise that you think actually it's really key that people take that on board yeah so i suppose thinking about taking those small wins and seeing them as wins and celebrating your what you've achieved you know you can if people are wanting to become clinical academics and you know the end the end goal can be in sight but there are various things that you can do on the way you know you can celebrate um you know setting up a journal club reading a paper celebrate something that you've done that makes you one step closer because I think sometimes the big goals can become a little bit daunting or you can think actually I can't get there how could I get there so I think celebrating those small wins I think is really important but I think my main tip or my main thing I don't want to do tips because it makes it sound like I'm some sort of expert and I don't really think that I am an expert expert, (laughs) (laughs) but I think so um Donna Haraway who is um she was actually a physicist but she's a sociologist and she says that um we should stay with the trouble and I think my tip is for people to stay with the trouble um and she's actually talking about how um we really we need each other in unexpected combinations she says so you don't always you need people to come together from different groups and you need to put yourself in these difficult situations that don't feel like they might mash or they might be um different or or we just need to stay where the where the difficult situations are so that we can kind of grow and become something and we can make a difference so she talks about you know we all need to be like in compost yeah like you need to learn from other people and you need to if it's hard and it's difficult and but it's worthwhile stay with the trouble because you're just going to become by being in that she calls it a hot mess um we can just stay in that hot mess and um eventually we will make a difference and i think that that is what i would encourage people to do if it feels tricky stay with the trouble no oh, absolutely perfect i've got so many questions i want to ask you but i know we've i know we've reached the time um so thank you so much um for coming on rad chat it's been great and we'll have to get you back again uh, are you coming to ukio I've submitted an abstract, so if I am accepted, I will be at UKIO. There you go. A great opportunity for me to call call you and get you in the pod box and ask you lots more questions. Great. (laughs) So if you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. So our next guest to feature will be Dr. Claire Taylor, MBE, and she's going to be discussing her career and role as Chief Nursing Officer at Macmillan Cancer Support and the late effects from